Hello and welcome to Upland Lives. My name is Mike Rain, author of Nature Snowdonia. This podcast is free to air, ad-free and music-free. You can find out more about me, my workshops and e-learning modules at www.mikerain.co.uk. My guest today is Dr. Mark Avery. Mark is a former conservation director with the RSPB. He's a scientist, a naturalist, and he has a passion for, for all things natural and nature, uh, but in particular, birds and bird life. He's the author of Inglorious, a hugely influential book, which actually went so far as to accuse the driven grouse shooting of not being a completely sustainable way of managing our uplands. He campaigns on a range of conservation issues. He's a blogger, writer, and public speaker. Mark, along with Ruth Tingay and Chris Packham, is a director of the legal campaign group Wild Justice. Mark, thank you for joining me today. How are you today? Uh, okay, I'm uh, sitting in a slightly gloomy Northamptonshire, so uh, a long way away from the hills, which is your natural habitat, I think, Mike. But uh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. It is, and I've been over the hill this morning, so uh, so it's been nice, nice to be able to get some air. Mark, what you do is is quite a complicated thing, isn't it? Can you, for the listeners, um, condense what you actually do? You know, do you have a job? Do you have a typical day? <laughs> How do you campaign? What what is wild justice? So, what what do you do on a Monday morning at nine o'clock? Uh, I usually have breakfast because I've usually been up <laughs> since uh, I've usually been up since about five o'clock. My goodness! Uh, because I wake up early. Uh, I don't set the alarm. I would tend to wake up early and I start working. And uh, you're right. I haven't got a job, uh, but I spend a lot of my time writing. So I do write a blog. Not so often now. I write for a few magazines. I write for British Wildlife. Got to write something for them this week. Um, I've written a few books and I've written, uh, I finished the first uh, draft of a book uh, just before Christmas. So uh, I'm now going to start going through that and rewriting what I hope won't be too much of it. Um, and I'm a campaigner. So the work I do with Chris Packham and Ruth Tingay in Wild Justice that takes up quite a bit of time as well. And in between, so all of this is unpaid. I mean, writing is kind of paid, but I don't have a <laughs> full-time job doing it. And if you saw how much, well, you know, I think, if you, I do, people yeah. realised how much you make from writing books, they'd say, well, why do you bother? And that yeah. is quite a good question. I bother writing and uh, giving talks and speaking to you and your audience now. Um, because I've got a passion for the natural world and I don't think we're being very fair to wildlife in the UK and our wildlife needs a better deal and it can't speak out on its own so it needs some people uh, however inadequate like myself to speak out on its behalf and we all ought to be doing a bit more than that Otherwise, we won't get any change. There's so, so many things that are stacked up against wildlife, which is why we see declines in many, many species and declines in habitats. We've got to change things. So I'm a, I'm a campaigner. I'm restless for change. Well, you're certainly not inadequate, Mark. You've, you've made a big mark. Um, a big mark. Sorry, Mark's made a big <laughs> mark. Um, 
And and for us, I mean, certainly for me, the attention was drawn with the publication of Inglorious, which it's it's not an easy read in some ways. I, I am from Yorkshire. I started walking in Nidderdale and the North Yorkshire Moors. I'm one of those people who would suggest Swaledale is one of the most beautiful places in the country. And I, I won't quite say you've spoilt it for me, but you've certainly opened my eyes up Um that perhaps it's not the natural pristine wilderness that maybe I thought it was when I was a teenager. And, and with a little bit more educated looking at that landscape, I do notice a lot of sunbirds on some parts of it and a lack of any birds at all on other parts of it. Perhaps you could enlighten us as to what is going on on those moors. Uh, I think... Um... I think just to take one step back, we do kind of look at places like the Lake District, which is a, a different bit of the uplands and the different national park. And we're kind of, um, we think that they're very beautiful. And in some ways they are very beautiful because a big pile of mountains, if the sun's shining, which it isn't all the time, but, but you know, big pile of mountains uh, makes that, particularly if you spend a lot of your time in the lowlands or in a town looking at people and buses and things like that, being out in the uplands, in the, in the fresh air, looking at a landscape rather than looking at the other side of the road is amazing. But the Lake District is a pretty knackered landscape. <laughs> I mean, it's, it sh those hills, almost all of them should be covered with trees if that were a natural landscape. And they're not. And they're you know, they're grazed to high heaven or low hell, whichever way you want to look at it, by sheep. So let's go to the places that you used to uh, walk through in the, uh, in the Yorkshire Dales, say, another national park. Notice it's a national park, but uh, a lot of it is, driven, is given over either to intensive uh, sheep pasture, which isn't great for birds, or for grouse shooting, which is all the heathery bits where the, the heather is burned in strips. So uh, you can tell you're not in the natural landscape when you stand on one side of a valley, look across at the other, and there are all these rectangular shapes in the heather on the other side of the hill. And that's because they've been burned and they've been burned to create exactly the right types of conditions for red grouse, a native bird. I always think they look a bit like chickens, really. I mean, they're kind of like pheasants with uh, tiny tails. Uh, it's a native bird. Uh, it lives in the wild. It's not bred in captivity like pheasants and partridges, red leg partridges are. So red grouse are up on the hills all through the winter it's a tough bird um it's quite a nice bird it's a good bird i like red grouse um but the, many people think that the main point of red grouse is to shoot them and so they're shot for sport they're shot for sport from what um is called by some people the glorious 12th, the 12th of August, which is why my book, which you've been kind enough to mention, is called Inglorious, because not only do I not think that grouse shooting is 
completely sustainable. I think it's completely unsustainable, actually. If if we didn't, if we hadn't been doing it for about 150 years since Victorian times, there's no way that we would introduce the very intensive management. So burning is one part of it. Um, very intensive predator control. So some of that is legal. So a fox or a stoat on your grouse moor will eat grouse eggs if they can find them. And that will reduce the number of grouse that will uh, hatch and grow up through the summer and be available to be shot at from the inglorious 12th onwards. Um, there's quite a lot of drainage on grouse moors as well to make them drier because heather does better under dry conditions. So, uh, you know, when, when you go up onto the moors, North York moors, Yorkshire Dales, bits of the Peak District, bits of the Durham Moors, Northumberland, and quite a lot of southern and eastern Scotland. You see all this heather, which is very pretty for a few months in the autumn when it's all purple, but it's about as natural as a wheat field, really. It is intensively managed, and the purpose of that management is to create very high, unnaturally high densities of red grouse and the reason we want those is not so that we can go and look at them and admire them it's so that people can shoot them and people will pay a lot of money to for a day's grouse shooting what's a lot of money well you can certainly pay upwards of six seven eight thousand pounds for a day's grouse shooting that's one person now i'm a bird watcher like you said i've never spent seven grand on a day's bird watching in my <laughs> life so far um that's made because i'm a poor and b a bit tight but uh, you can see that there is money in grouse shooting and not all grouse shooting goes at that sort of level of expenditure but it's a sport it's a so-called sport it would be more sporting if the grouse were armed as well but it's a <laughs> it, it's a so-called sport that people will pay for to shoot at this bird and they want to shoot lots of red grouse so the management of the hills is set up to produce lots of red grouse but that's not natural and there are so many side effects of that management that I would say we'd be much better off without it. Maybe we could get into that in a bit, but that's why they exist. It's so that lots of red grouse, lots of shooting income, and we're told it's traditional. Well, it's, it's only about 150 years traditional. Um, there was people have shot and trapped red grouse before that time, but not as intensively and in the numbers that they did after the um, uh, shotgun was um, uh, invented so that you could load load and reload very quickly. So. so, Mark, you mentioned burning there. Isn't the burning to reduce the fire load in the event of wildfires? No, no, that's an excuse that's come along recently. I mean, the burning is there to produce um, a patchwork of heather age. So heather, you know, most people know what heather is, this kind of shrub thing. Um, it, it grows to 
maybe a meter tall on, in those habitats. And that tall heather is good for shelter and hiding from predators. So that's where the grouse nest. But they eat heather as well. That's, what, that's why heather is so important. And red grouse do better where there's lots of young heather because young heather is more nutritious. And to get young heather, you burn off the old heather every few years. Now, is uh, so that's why it's done. And the impact of that is to increase flood risk, uh, damage protected habitats like blanket bogs, increase the risk of uh, carbon emissions because peatlands tend to dry out if they're burned over and over again. It increases water pollution. So there are a whole load of things that are bad about this burning that have got nothing to do with the red grouse. The red grouse like it. It's not good news for you if you live downstream. And this, this whole business of, isn't it to stop wildfires? No, that's an excuse that's come along in the last few years to try to justify this. Um, yeah, a bit of burning. A bit of burning to reduce wildfire risk might be sensible in some places. But the scale of burning we have in the uplands is all to do with making money out of shooting red grouse. That's what it's for. I mean, the stuff that the shooting industry comes up with, they, they tell a lot of very tall tales. They have the same, um, I would say, they, they basically have the same relationship with the truth as uh, Boris Johnson does. Occasionally, he says something that's vaguely true, um, but it's almost by accident sometimes, I think. It, it's hard not to get political at the moment, isn't it? Let, let me just pick up on the drainage, Mark, because I have walked across these moors and I've seen them blocking off the ditches that were once... Uh, there was government funding, wasn't there, to drain these moors to improve the productivity. I do see these being blocked off now on some of the moors. So, so surely that's a helpful thing that's going on. Uh, it is, but that's not ha happening everywhere. And it's funded largely by public money it wasn't not all of that drainage was funded by public money some of it was absolutely done in order to get the water off the hills so that there could be more heather uh, it's a bit like um on farmland we paid farmers in the distant past to get rid of hedgerows and then uh, once we got rid of so many of them we went hang on that's not so great we then paid them to put them back in although quite a lot of those hedgerows were taken out without us paying for them at all it's just the same up yeah. on the grouse small so if we leave these areas if we don't burn the grouse if we um let nature take its course as it were they will return to scrub and forest and the heather moors will be lost forever oh, i don't know who told you that that sounds like you've been told that by somebody from the grouse shooting industry um, um there will be a more uh mixed range of habitats and many of the places we're talking about as we've talked about so far are national parks National parks in the UK are very peculiar compared with <laughs> national parks anywhere else in the world. They're really not worthy of the name. It would be really good, I think, to take one or two of our national parks and rewild them. Uh, rewilding is, is a kind of trendy thing at the moment, which it's difficult to know exactly what it means. But a better mixture of natural habitats 
what could possibly be wrong with that? And the Heather Moreland <laughs> wouldn't disappear. Heather would still be there. I mean, it, it hasn't been planted there by grouse shooters. It's been there for hundreds and thousands of years. But there might it would change. There would be more scrub. There would be more woodland. Uh, there would still be um, heather moors. And some of that, there'd be more wetlands. Uh, I'd love to see it. It's the type of mixture of habitat you would see if you went to Scandinavia, because they don't—they've got the same species of bird. Basically, they call it the willow grouse, or they call it something in Norwegian or Swedish, um, yeah. but it's basically the same bird. And they shoot them too, but they shoot them by going for a walk and shooting at one when it flies up. They don't have this very intensive shooting that we have in the UK. But Scandinavians don't come over and look at our national parks and go, oh, no, we've been doing it wrong all these years. I must go back to the hills of Norway and Sweden and start burning little patches and draining them and killing all the stoats and foxes and everything. Every, anybody else would look at what we do and go, that is bizarre. It always, it's always difficult for a society that's kind of grown up with a type of land use or a type of behaviour to shift from it. And I suppose... Um, I suppose my my booking glorious was a was a one way of trying to persuade more people to do what you said to look afresh at those landscapes to understand a bit more about what's going on and to think well does it have to be like that and it clearly doesn't have to be like that um, so it's our decision, really. Our decision, I would say, as a society, what we want the uplands to be like. And I'd like them to be um, better for people, better for the climate and better for wildlife. And I think we could get that by a softer type of management. And we're never going to get it through intensive dry shooting. Never, ever, ever. Yet on some of those moors, certainly not all of them, some of the moors I've been on, they seem bereft of wildlife, but I have been on some. Uh, the southern side of Swaledale I was on earlier last year, and there were definitely golden plovers, there were lapwings, there were grouse. There was hundreds of rabbits. I've never seen as many rabbits in my life. Oh, right. uh, we don't have many rabbits where we are. So, so there was some wildlife on that moor, but there was less on the north side of Swaledale. So, so are some moors that are managed for grouse shooting better for wildlife than others? Uh, they're certainly different. So they're better for some species. And let's, let's, let's look at that um, completely honestly. There are some species like golden plover where the average density, curlew would be another one. Golden plover and curlew, you'll get more of them on average on grouse moors than you might on land that's uh, managed, not managed for grouse shooting. But you won't get more of everything. That would be ridiculous. So you've got to weigh up the things that you get more of and the things you get less of. And you get fewer black grouse on, funnily enough, on grouse moors. It's because grouse moors ought to be called red grouse moors because, as <laughs> I've said, they're manage so that they're great for red grouse you would manage those moors very differently if you wanted lots of black grouse because they're exactly the the type of species that wants 
the stuff that we call scrub, which is kind of a slightly derogatory remark, isn't it? People tend to say scrub and they they kind of say it in a way that makes you think mm, they don't really like this. Well, scrub is a habitat. It's great for lots of wildlife and it is very good for black grouse. Um, but obviously, one of, the, one of the classic things on grouse moors is the lack of birds of prey. And birds of prey are absent for many grouse moors, absolutely absent, uh, because they're killed. And that is not legal. That is illegal and has been illegal since at least 1954, which is even before I was born. Um, uh, and the, the birds we're talking about there are uh, birds like peregrine falcons, golden eagles in Scotland, hen harriers, red kites, goshawks are, are persecuted. Sometimes they're not completely wiped out, but in England, there ought to be um, about 300 pairs of nesting hen harriers, many of which would be, they'd all be in the uplands and most of, not most, many of them would be on, on land that is currently grouse moor. And there are about 30 pairs. And that, that has crept up over the last few years. So we're a tenth of what there should be. If you look at Scotland, then the, there are a lot more hen harriers in Scotland, but they're all living, not all, most of them, the vast majority of them are living on the places where there's no grouse shooting. Mm. When you go to the grouse moors in Scotland, they don't have hen harriers. They ought to, but they don't. And um, mm. we know why that we know why that is, is because they're killed. And how do we know they're killed? It's because there's been lots of science. This is not in any dispute, really. Government has set up working parties to try and look at how you can stop people um, killing hen harriers and they've pretty much failed I would say because I mean I think you have to clamp down on grouse shooting and um, you have to have a load of coppers walking around <laughs> searching people searching people's land rovers and uh, that type of thing. The, um, the organizations Mark that manage these moors the British Association for Shooting Conservation, the Countryside Allowance, Moorland Association, National Gatekeepers Organization, they've issued a very strong statement saying there is no excuse for the illegal killing of birds of prey and we unreservedly condemn all such acts. So they would appear to admit this is a problem or has been. Well, they don't quite, do they? What they okay. say is it shouldn't happen. And okay. I don't, I, I'm not sure. I, I think that was that statement from. 2020 or something like that that's the one Cause, yeah because well they say that every year i mean mm -hmm. it's easy enough to say we don't well what else could they say actually <laughs> what else could they say they can't say we're all at it mainly because probably not quite all of them are at it mm. but they can't say yep grouse shooting is associated so strongly associated with illegal behavior wildlife crime uh, because what do they then say so if they have to say well it doesn't happen very often we're against it if it happens we'll take measures against anybody who's doing any any such thing uh, but they don't they don't we we are seeing a few um grass most changing aren't they there's the Langholm project which has been bought by the community and it'll be interesting to see how that one pans out if 
more moors were to be wilder, would that have economic consequences for communities that currently depend upon the driven grouse shooting industry? Uh, up to a point. Of course it would, because if people will pay for one type of thing, then if you say, well, you can't do that type of thing anymore, then that source of money disappears. Uh, let's just remember, uh, grouse shooting is a luxury niche hobby. Now, if you're telling me that rich people with lots of money are going to stop spending their money on doing things that they like doing if they can't shoot grouse, then I'd have to say, I don't think you've got that quite right. So <laughs> that money will not be lost from the economy. It might be lost from the economy of Swaledale, Mm -hmm. But somebody else would be picking up that money. And that's quite right if that money is based on crime. But there's a whole load of other economics on this. If by burning your grouse moor, you're increasing the flood risk of communities downstream, who pays for that? Nobody at the moment. Well, we all do, actually. Yeah, you pay for do. it through through your home insurance and there's a thing called flood re which is a kind of top up on all of our home insurance so that people living in flood prone areas some of which might be affected by management in the hills not all of them can actually insure their houses but if your hobby of shooting chicken like birds for fun depends on burning which increases flood risk you have to take that into account in the rounded economics of the situation you have to take the increased carbon emissions into account you can attach a, a monetary value to those you have to take account of the increased water treatment costs that water companies have to invest in because burning puts loads of little bits of carbon into the water that have to be taken out. You have to cost the fact that I'd love to see more hen harriers when I go out at weekend and I can't. And that's a, that's a kind of, there's a quasi economic cost to that. So nobody yet has done the full economics of this. But I promise you, if they did, and I think there are some people who are now doing it, if they did, they would not come up with a, oh, we must keep grouse shooting because it's so valuable to the economy. It's valuable to a few people, but it's not valuable to us all. It's a cost to us all overall. I'm not quite sure what to say, Mark. It seems to me that there are some people who like to shoot birds and some people who like to take pictures of birds. And uh, we will do our best to justify what it is that we like to do. Uh, I think there is a, there is something in that. I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-shooting. I'm not keen on shooting. I'm never going to sign up to go out for a day's pheasant shooting or grouse shooting i kind of think it's a bit odd that that's how people some people get their kicks but then i think it's a bit odd that some people like jazz because i can't stand jazz <laughs> i'm not going to try and stop everybody doing things that i don't enjoy but you ha if you look at all the things associated with grouse shooting i think you have to add them all up and there's not a lot going for it, really, in terms of its overall impact on 
society. And the thing about campaigning for an end to driven drought shooting, which I have done, is that all those people who don't like shooting, they support it because they just think it ought to stop. The people who are worried about climate change, they support it because our peatlands, uh, the peat bogs on the, uh, our hills, are bigger carbon stores than all the trees in the UK put together. So they look at the poor management of the uplands and say that much stop, must stop. Birders, which is kind of at heart what I am, look at the fact that golden eagles, hen harriers, peregrines are missing from large areas of the uplands where they ought to live, and those areas are managed for grouse moors, and they go, well, this isn't right. So you get a coalition of views coming together. And who are the people who approve of grouse shooting? It's the people who do it and the people who profit from it. That's a very small section of society. Mark, time as ever is running away from us. You did mention pheasants in there. I think that's one of the things that um, Wild Justice has been working on. It's not really an upland thing. We do see them in the uplands. I, I know there's a moor not far from me where which uh, which has got a lot of pheasant on it for, for shooting. What, what's the issue with pheasant shooting? Uh, it's, um, well... Uh, in the olden days, when I used to go to London quite a lot, I would occasionally get into a taxi and uh, I liked talking to taxi drivers. And one of my questions of them would be, how many pheasants do you think are reared in captivity and released into the countryside every year? Because everybody knows what a pheasant is, you know. Mm. It's it. We see it on pictures in rural pubs and the pubs called the pheasant and you see it in supermarkets a bit. And... Um, they came, they came up with estimates like hundreds of oh, loads, hundreds of thousands. Well, 50 million pheasants are reared and released every year. Not so many 50 now. Million. 50 million. 50 million. million. Okay. That's almost one each That's in the UK. Yeah. No wonder uh, there's so many on the road. Absolutely. And we now know that they cause problems for native wildlife. I mean, you look at the front end of a pheasant and it's quite a big bird and it's got quite a big kind of hooked beak and it gobbles up all sorts of things. It will eat um, vegetation. It will eat invertebrates. So if you put them into a wood with lots of rare big beetles, you ought to be a bit worried about them. It will eat some bird's eggs. Uh, pheasants will eat young reptiles. They'll eat uh, lizards and young adders. Amazing. I didn't think I didn't mm. think pheasants would eat snakes, but they do. Adders are decreasing, definitely mm. decreasing. Um, so pheasants are a bit of a problem because of all that type of thing. And it's just gone over the top. I mean, pheasants have been here since the Romans, but the Romans did not release 50 million pheasants into the countryside every year. And when I was a kid, say 50 years ago, uh, there were a tenth the number of pheasants released wow. into the countryside. So this is an assault on nature, I would describe it, yeah. which has grown up in our lifetime with nobody saying, hang on a minute, this is getting a bit over the top. And 
I think I think many people in the shooting community feel a bit the same about it, okay. but they need a bit of a nudge to do something about it. And while Justice has had some success in getting DEFRA in England to limit pheasant release numbers, we haven't, I don't think we've, I mean, we certainly haven't won this, but we are, we've made more difference in a couple of years to this issue mm. than anybody else has ever, I would say. Yeah, it's certainly been on the news a bit more, whereas it wasn't before, isn't it? And it's the environmental impact that's obviously the concern. Mark, just tell us about Wild Justice. What is it? Why did you set it up? What does it do? Okay, it is um, a not-for-profit organisation. It's not a charity, but it's kind of halfway to being a charity. It was set up by... Ruth Tingay, who writes the excellent Raptor Persecution UK blog, uh, myself, and a bloke off the telly called Chris Packham, who nobody's heard of. Uh, and we're mates, and we've kind of worked together on various campaigns in the past. And we thought, well, actually, there's more that we could do. And what we do, we do some campaigning, but we also take legal challenges against uh, government agencies and government. So uh, we haven't made our way around to Scotland quite yet, but we have taken um, challenges against Natural England and DEFRA in England, against Natural Resources Wales in Wales, and against the Agriculture Department in Northern Ireland. And we've won some and we've lost some, but even the ones we've lost, We've made a difference, actually. We have moved on the debate and moved things on. So we take things saying, hang on, this is the law and you're not sticking to the law. You are the government agency or you are the government itself, the government department, and you are not sticking to the law. Uh, and as I say, we have won some of those cases. They're very difficult to win. You kind of win one in 10 and our strike rate at the moment is a lot higher than that. Um, so we are trying to uh, change the law sometimes, but to get the law implemented in the way that it should be all the time. Because what's oh. the point in having a law that nobody takes any notice of, particularly yeah. if it's the very people who are supposed to be enforcing it? Yeah. So as we move to a close mark, that's just overwhelming amounts of information people can uh, sign up to the wild justice newsletter i believe they can obviously read inglorious from your point of view we as a, as a group mountaineer and instructors mountain leaders hill leaders, we're leading people in these places we, we we don't like to be we like to offer a sort of balanced viewpoint but where would you like us to focus attention? How would you like us to talk to the people that we're leading and open up their eyes to the possibility that things could be different in a lot of our uplands? Uh, well, I think uh, that the whole area of rewilding is the one to talk about, because you can talk about that generally. And there are some very good books on the subject of rewilding. Uh, so George Monbiot's Feral kicked it all off about 10 years ago. Uh, in the Lowlands, there's uh, Isabella Tree's book, Wild Wilding, which is about the NEP estate in Sussex. Uh, there's a book 
called rebirding, which is about how we could um, uh, rewild habitats and make them better for birds and everything else. But it kind of fills in many of the gaps. Uh, and there's a book. What's it called? Uh, is it called Regeneration? It came out last year, which is about Mar Lodge. Yeah. Uh, and that Andrew painting thing, yep. it's a very good book. Um, and that's an Upland one, and that is in Scotland. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, you don't have to tell people what they should think, but, you know, you could stand on top of a hill and say, how many birds of prey have we seen today? And the answer in many parts of the country would be, mm, not that many. And you could say, you could look around and say, what would this place look like if it were more natural? How would we imagine it? And that would often be more trees, fewer sheep, less intervention. And you could go, well, there's quite a lot written about this stuff now. It's a growing thing. Go away from here and hope you've had a really nice time, seen some good scenery. But if that scenery were more naturally clothed in native vegetation and had more wildlife, surely it would be even better. Mark, I think that's a fantastic case. Flown by, actually, the time. That's a really good place to finish. So I want to say thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. And I hope people do go and read those books. There are some books that I have recommended to them before. Um, so they need to pull the finger out and get reading. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close? No, pleasure to talk to you. And um, people ought to go out into the uplands and enjoy them. Uh, you ought to, when you're, when you're standing in a national park, though, think, hmm, this isn't quite like national parks in other bits of the world. Are we getting this right or are we getting it wrong? Mark Avery, thank you very much indeed.